This week on Thriving on Mission. Break left, break left, missile, missile, missile. He's manning a gun. He's like an E4 that they, you're a gunner now, right? And he's got a little pickle grip in his hand. And he's scared to death. Like, we're, we're, we're just waiting to die, you know, all of us. And at some point, this kid figures out, I've got this thing here that launches a flare. So he goes, click. Here's, here's a Ranger story. Hey, Chief, tomorrow night I'm going to need you to load up 45 Rangers. I said, okay, 45, Sergeant, that's it, right? 45. And he goes, yep. 60 freaking Rangers show up <laughs> standing behind my helicopter. You know, we're doing this now. And remember, false much. enthusiasm is better than no enthusiasm at all. <laughs> that's an old night stalker line. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to Thriving on Mission. We're here for another episode, and just as always, we can catch you can catch the show either watch it on YouTube or you can listen to it on podcasts on any of the popular platforms. Uh, I'm your host Matt Rogie, and I'm here today as always with producer Quinn Harris. What's up, Quinn? What up? Hey, Quinn. And uh, I got a special guest today. We've already been having fun. Um, man, it just seems like we already started the show a few minutes ago. But you know, I'm here with uh, a friend of mine, Dan Folds. Dan, how you doing? Good. Thanks. Good, man. It's great to be here, Matt. Yeah, glad to have you here. I'm, I'm super excited. There's so much I want to talk about with you today. Um, and just to hear, even some of the things, just to hear some of your wisdom, some of your insight, you know. Um, but, you know, just for real quick, I, I look at you as legacy. I look at you as the guy who went before me. You know, there's lots of guys like you who went yeah, my, before me. My some... helicopters are static displays now. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so as we get started, let's just jump into this, Dan. Um you know, just give a quick introduction of who you are, what, what you know, what you're doing now, and then we'll get into a little bit of your of your history, sure. your background. So I'm a very, very lucky uh, fellow. Uh, I am a retired helicopter pilot, and I currently serve as a boat captain on uh, the Savannah Rivers, which one career kind of just rolled right into another. Uh, I, I was a plank holder in 3rd Battalion of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Uh, I got here in 1989, summer of 89. Uh, my platoon leader was a young kid named Eric Peterson, who probably has three stars now. Yeah, know. yeah. Uh, one of my company commanders is a guy named Jim Viola, who was a just a regular, you know, a special operations company commander. And today he is in charge of the Helicopter Association International, uh, which is a worldwide organization related to helicopters mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's kind of cool that I got to be part of both of those lives and both of those careers yeah uh, I was an instructor pilot in the army you were a mentor to them without a doubt and the, and, and vice versa yeah, yeah sure and vice sure versa. yeah both of them outstanding individuals um, and you're also the president of so yeah I'm the uh, current president of the uh, Savannah chapter of the Night Stalker Association, which is the auxiliary that supports the soldiers and the families uh, working with 3rd Battalion today. Gotcha. So uh, I came here in 89 and I went away for a couple of years on a flying gig and now I'm back. And uh, I guess about four or five years ago, uh, they had a meeting at the battalion and, and uh, General Forrester, retired, came over and was sitting behind me. And uh, the current colonel of the battalion, Reggie Harper, said, you know, we don't really have anything going on with our chapter of the NSA, the Night Stalker Association, and we want to get it going. And Bill Forrester is just tapping me on the back, you know, and he goes, we need a guy just like you 
to get involved with this. So that's how that happened. Um, when a general says do something, you know, even if you're old and retired like me, you know, you tend to listen to what a general says. Right, um, right. It's been probably the best assignment of my life. I've had some good assignments lately, some good things that I've got involved with, but that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I've been able to go out and involve civilians in this community that have never had anything at all to do with the military and lash them up with night stalkers and, and, and do events and you know show support and it's been good for soldiers and it's been good for the community. So you know. why, why, um, why is it good? I mean what, 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 have, you, what have you seen tangibly? Give me some well the, so I've got friends that are civilians and, and, this, and you'll hear this a lot from a civilian you know man, I should, have, I should have joined the military. I should have served. I feel bad. And I say, don't feel bad that you didn't serve. You know, my path was in that direction, mm -hmm. and your path was in a different direction, and you've done great things. Uh, if you want to support your country and, and support the military, come with me, and we're going to go, and we're going to feed 400 soldiers next Saturday, and you're going to stand in the hot sun all day, you know? And right. they'll do it. Yeah. And, and then when we're done, we'll go get a beer at Coach's Corner, and they'll sit there and thank me for giving them the opportunity to go work their butt off all day long, yeah, in the heat mm -hmm. or the rain, they don't care, right? You know, so um, I think that a strong military is vital to the long-term success of our country, and I think that uh, the more that the average citizen understands the military and how, and you know, the sacrifice that service members give, uh, the better it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I our kids have been at war continuously in third battalion since 9-11. Yeah. That's a, that's a long. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, it hurts when you say that. It really does. It's, so, yeah, so it's good. Yeah. It's yeah. good. Uh, you know, for, uh, you know, thinking about that and thinking about, you know, the, getting the civilians involved and how important that is in the community because, you know, they're the ones ultimately that, I mean, they pay the taxes. They're mm -hmm. the voters. I mean, yeah. you know, soldiers, soldiers vote and pay taxes too. But, you know, to be disconnected from something, it, it's so much easier for people to make decisions if they don't have a personal sure. face attached to it. Or Yeah, it's just something that's going on over there. You know, you know the, when the surge was just winding down, I, you probably remember the surge. Um, I've got a friend whose son is a Marine. And he, uh, we were at coaches watching, I think, a Georgia football game, you know, and the place was packed, three or 400 people in there, and everybody's just rah, rah, having a good time. And it was a great day. This kid got on an airplane coming home from the surge, so he was freezing his butt off out in the middle of a valley. And then 48 hours later, he's sitting in coach's corner in that room right. with all that going on. Yeah. And he's got this. I have to be careful. I'm like, screw myself up here. <laughs> He's got this like long yard stare, you mm -hmm. know. And I went over and I sat down and started talking to him. I said, hey, I'm a retired soldier. Don't got to say nothing. Yeah. Just glad you're here. Yeah. So, so we uh, actually the next day I rounded up some Marines. And we just went and hung out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love, Good stuff. I absolutely love. Hanging We're gonna out talk with, about happy stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's enough of that. I absolutely love hanging out with with, with young soldiers, Marines. And again, it's funny to say young, but 
because um, I was doing the math this morning, and I was yeah. like, so Dan's probably, let's see, so I got there in 99, and he retired just before I got there. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you're probably, you got about 10 years, and I guess it's, it's about 12 years. But anyway, young guys handing out, and gals too, um, soldiers, vets, Marines, sailors, it doesn't matter, but they're just so much fun. You know, it's it just is. like, yeah. you know, I especially love hanging out with Rangers, young Rangers, because there is just, I mean, you know, I, yeah. mean, I mean, you know, without a doubt what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. There's just, you know, that, that they've Ranger. Got a, they've got a lot of a high level of energy. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then they put it to good use. Um, and I'm thank, you know, we both are thankful for what they do for our nation. And um, yeah, lots of fun. Here's here's a Ranger story. Hey, Chief. Tomorrow night, I'm going to need you to load up 45 Rangers. I said, okay. 45, Sergeant, that's it, right? 45. And he goes, yep. And I go, okay, what's their average weight? Uh, they're little kids. They weigh like 150 pounds. How much have they got in their rucksacks? Oh, their rucks are like 25 pounds. 60 freaking Rangers show up, <laughs> standing behind my helicopter. You know, we're doing this now. They get in. I've, got, I've done a validation factor for the maximum gross weight of my helicopter, which is 50,000 pounds. And I pull power. And to get that helicopter to come up in the air... We're, we're at 54,000 pounds. <laughs> in the civilian world, you don't do that with a right. helicopter. But in the military, in combat, you do different things. Yeah. So yeah. we're 4,000 pounds over gross weight, and uh, and we're chugging off. And, and I mean, you just got to love Rangers, you know. Yeah. What are you going to say to them, you know? Right, yeah, you can't bring that extra <laughs> ammo, or you can't, you know. You know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, the, and uh, they're just amazing kids, yeah. you know. They're so amazing kids. How did you start your military career? Uh... I needed a place to live. Okay. Basically. I was 20 years old. I my, I grew up at like a mutt in Central Florida and uh, a misspent youth. <laughs> had a lot of bad habits and a lot of bad friends. And then I finally got to where like you're either going to be in the military or you're going to be homeless. And so I went in the Air Force because I was a wimp and I figured <laughs> like that was the easiest way to be in the military. Yeah. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, what did you do in the Air Force? I loaded bombs on B-52s on Guam all night long in the rain. Right. Believe it or not, I actually enjoyed it. You know, <laughs> It's a warm rain. Yeah. You know, it wasn't bad. Okay. Uh, and then I was a gun mechanic. I used to work on the, the, the Vulcan cannon that goes into most modern fighter jets. Yep. Shoots 6,000 bullets a minute. They're big bullets. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided I needed to get a job you know, that would transition to the civilian world, so I, uh, I became a club manager in the Air Force at MacDill Air Force Base, so I had pretty much the premier job in the military. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, didn't even wear a uniform, I wore a suit. Right. And that, there were 36 general officers at MacDill when I was there, so, and I got to know every one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one day I said, I'd like to go to flight school, and when you know 36 general officers, by God, you can get things done. Yeah. And so uh, this uh, warrant officer called my club secretary one day from the Department of Army's Accessions Branch and said, tell that staff sergeant he's going to flight school. Tell him to stop making trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and so off I went. Now, that was a culture shock, going from wearing a civilian suit. Basically, right. I was a, a, a business guy, you know, right. only this much in the military. And then I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And, man, that was a culture shock. Yeah. But got through that. Yeah. And, uh, and had a good time. My year at Fort Rucker was probably the best year of my life. Um, had everything you would expect from that experience, including learning how to fly a helicopter yep. on somebody else's dime. Yeah. You know, and rolled right. I was very lucky 
the smartest guy in my class and the second smartest guy in my class loved Blackhawks. And I liked Chinooks from day one. I was picking up trash out on the parade ground one day and a Chinook flew over my head right after a parade. And the guy went right over my head and I was like transfixed, you know. Yeah. Like, wow, that's, that's what I want to do. And I was third in my class and there was one Chinook. And man, that, that really set the course of my life right there. Sure. That, that, little, uh, that little event, getting, mm -hmm. getting to be a Chinook pilot. So then you went to uh, your first assignment? Was Fort Bragg. And uh, had a... So you were a flipper? Yes, I was. I had a uh, significant emotional event while I was there. Um, and, it, and that event also kind of changed the rest of my life. And, you know, people say, why do you do all the good, you know, nice things that you do? Like, say, Randy Dave or say, well, I was in Honduras with a Chinook, and another Chinook came down there from... Uh, from Hunter here at Savannah. We actually had two, but I took one of them. And I had a co-pilot named Alan Urban, and my crew was uh, John McConnell and Doug Crop. And we're down there, and there was this fellow from Hunter, a guy named Randy Potter, who just did not like his platoon leader. Um, and the, the animosity be between them was ongoing. This is 1988. Um, and one night, we're, I don't know if you've ever been to Sotokano. Yep. The, yep. The base there. There's a volleyball court but by the hooches. Yeah. You know, and the guys. Over the black side, right? The dark side. Uh, I, it, it wasn't on the. I don't, we had our own spot, right? I, we were across the runway from, yeah. the, uh, from yeah. the Air Force and all those other people. Yep. We had a swimming pool. Yep. With a Chinook body bag. You yep. Know? Um, anyway, so we're out there, and uh, CW3 Potter sitting there drinking a beer, and I've got my beer. I'm a W2. And the OIC, Captain Dave Sullivan, is the third guy over, and Potter's just steady complaining about this, this platoon leader of his. And he says, as a matter of fact, I'm not flying with him anymore. You know, you're flying with my platoon leader from now on. And I'm laughing, you know. <laughs> well, well, if you don't like him, why are you going <laughs> to stick me with him? And I brought my helicopter here, you right. know, from, from, from Fort Bragg, and those are my guys, you know. And uh, Sullivan starts laughing and says, Chief, it sounds like you've been upstage. You know, you've been outranked. So the next day I got in a helicopter with this guy, Joe Seco, and Potter got in my helicopter with my crew. Uh, they had a uh, combining transmission fresh from CCAD, Corpus Christi Army Depot. And at, at its overhaul, they failed to diagnose a crack in the sun gear of the C-Box. And the helicopter came apart and killed everybody that day. Wow. Yeah. So my legs shook. Sure. For, yeah. You know, they grounded Chinooks for about three months, and then my legs shook when I got back in it because I was like, dude, that was really close. So there are, you know, if you look in history, there are instances of people that get a lucky break like that, and they think maybe somebody was trying to <laughs> give you a hint, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe there is something expected of you beyond sitting feeling sorry for yourself mm -hmm. or thinking only about yourself. And that's kind of how it's been with me. Um, wow. Yeah, I lucked out. Mm -hmm. You know, people say John LaDuke is lucky LaDuke. Dan Fold is lucky Dan. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that, was, uh, that was a close thing. Yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah, which also happened in Honduras. That was, that, yeah, that crash was in Honduras. It was December 8th, 1988. And one year later to the day, my uh, youngest son was born here. The first war dog baby. The first third battalion baby. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. On the day. So you, so you, so obviously you came back uh, from that TDY trip, 
back at Bragg and you decide, I want to go so, to special ops? No, actually what happened was, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a tough guy. Really. Um, <laughs> there was this young lieutenant colonel named Del Daly, who's today referred to as Ambassador, Ambassador Daly. Ambassador yep. Daly. Mm-hmm. Um, he, there's two stories about the foundation of 3rd Battalion. One is that the section of Blackhawks that were here to support the Rangers was populated by young warrant officers who had the keys to the rental car and a credit card. And occasionally in the Army, that gets that leads to trouble. Yeah, just yeah, occasionally. They start running off the reservation and, you know, they go crazy. Right. So there was that, that like we got to, you know, the Army's like, we got to rein this in. <clears throat> also at that time, the Special Operations Aviation world was pretty much centered at Fort Campbell. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to expand uh, the 160th. And they were going to take the Black Hawk unit here, the 129th Special Operations Aviation Company, mm-hmm. and grow that into 3rd Battalion of the 160th. So Dell Daly sent a letter out to every Chinook pilot in the world and said, I'm going to start this Special Operations Battalion, and I'd like you to come and, and be part of it. And how many replies do you think he got? Probably not many. <laughs> because if you, you know, the, the seat of the Chinook rotates back 15 degrees, right? Right. That's to accommodate the Chinook look. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I came in Chinooks out of flight school. And, and they probably, people probably looked at you like you don't belong here. Right, yeah, because everybody was old and gray. So I can, and that it was, used to be a reward. Right, right. For, for years of service in right. the Muddy Boot. That and fixed wing. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, you walk into a unit and it's nothing but W-4s and MW-4s at the time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I ran into that when I showed I, I up could as, under, a, yeah, as I could a see spot, that mentality. as a W-1, you know. So, nobody answered. And uh, a guy named Mark Oceanbine, a major that was a former Special Forces soldier, came over to the flipper hangar at Fort Bragg and recruited me. And, you know, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I said, uh, I'm not tracked yet. If you send me the IP course, I'll go for, I'll promise one year. I'll, I'll get through one year. <laughs> now, I didn't know about SEER school then. <laughs> if I'd have known about SEER school, I probably wouldn't have gone. That's right. Because <laughs> SEER slappy. And... I literally, SEER school literally beat my butt. <laughs> yeah. Beat me up. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> lost 18 pounds, 17 days. You know, the SEER weight loss program. But, uh, There's nothing better. <laughs> but, uh, and then I lasted nine years. Yeah, you know, and then I, I lasted until I, until I retired. Right, right. I got to do night stalker degree completion, which is uh, kind of an unofficial thing. The Army has a formal program, mm-hmm. and then this was informal. Yep. And uh, all Jim Viola said was, you have to train somebody one night a week, and once a month you need to move a helicopter for me if I need yeah. you to. So I did. I flew out to Holloman and brought a Chinook back in the middle of going to school for you. Right, yeah. Got my bachelor's degree at 40 years of age. Uh and it's never too old, by the way, to get a bachelor's degree. If you, because now that is 23 years ago that I got that bachelor's degree, you know, uh-huh. and, I, and it doesn't seem any different to me, 40 or 22. But uh, it's, you're never too old to right. to get an education. And and however you do it, whether you do it online or I, I kind of like the classroom environment myself. Um, it's an investment in yourself, and it makes you it makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a line: knowledge is power, and I. And I was talking to somebody on the boat the other day because now I, I instruct people in, yep. in boating and I, and I I said I don't have a whole lot of boating knowledge but what I have I'm willing to share with you to make you more powerful because at this stage of my life what makes me feel power is to make somebody else powerful mm-hmm. yeah that's it's giving back 
Yeah, just making know, making things making better. the world a better place. Just making th- yeah, yeah, making things better. Yeah, you know, uh, Chris Schirkenbach, before he uh, before he went on his last deployment, he was he was in degree completion. That was his. He just come back. I just got him current before he shipped out. Yeah. So Chris and I were fr- I assessed Chris for duty in the one sixty. Wow. Um, yeah. 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 And and uh, Bruce Bridges, Colonel Bridges, was uh, the president of his board. Uh, he, he, he was he's he, president of my board too. Yeah, he, you know, it's not fun. That that assessment board to be a nice talker is not fun. And yeah. when you go in and you, you know, you come to the position of attention and you salute and you do your spiel, yeah. and you do it to the wrong guy, and they tell you to do about face and go out and come back in and try it again. Right. Oh Lord, that's oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time we were out at Coronado. We were supporting the seals and we we're out there. We we're having dinner at the Hotel Dell in Coronado. Mm-hmm. And the regimental commander was there. I can't remember that gentleman's name, but he, you know, it's just a polite dinner, you know. And guy looks down at Bridges and says, so Bruce, you know, how long have you been in command of B Company 3rd of the 160th? And Dean Brown, uh, who was a fellow flying calder, he's, he's eating a piece of steak and he goes, forever! Because <laughs> he'd been there for longer than three years. Right. Know, I don't know what happened, but yeah, he stayed for a while. Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a great, great guy. That, you know, it's funny when you're young and you're going through experiences and, and a lot, you, you may think, you know, this is hard what I'm dealing with right now. Uh, and these people that I'm dealing with are hard and I'm not enjoying this. But honestly, later in life, you know, you look back on some of that stuff and you go, yeah, that way they weren't so bad. Yeah. There was, a lot of that was me. <laughs> yeah. And they, they set about changing my course. Right, right. right. And they did it the hard way, right. uh, and and I and some of that changing was hard to adapt to, but uh, right. Jeez, I, w- I wouldn't change anything now. Fast forward just a tiny bit, because uh, I know you've got some cool stories. I know we're not going to be able to talk about them all, but August of uh, let's see what have been nineteen ninety, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait. Yeah, and what happened? What happened to you? You were here in third battalion. <clears throat> yeah, so I w- the, there was a first group that went over like right away and i went i think on the 5th of january the second cohort gotcha and we went uh, to king khalid military city in so, saudi arabia yeah yeah so saw uh, andy caton and dean brown and paul Alexander, dave miller i think they'd all been there already and they had just been training up and just getting ready uh for for the for stuff to go down mm-hmm. and i got there and uh they put me with this guy named russ hunter who was a w4 from fort campbell because there was a task force from right. different battalion. Right. Um, yeah, actually, the night the air war started, I was in a Chinook with uh, with Russ Hunter, and a guy named Don Harwood was in the jump seat. And I don't know, the day before you go to war, you tend to not sleep. <laughs> You're just a little wound up. You right, know? yeah. Uh, the doc has pills, you know, to help you with that, but... Uh, so we had been really, really keyed up, and we had a mission, uh, what I would call today a fat cow mission. But yeah. We, we were full of fuel with internal tanks, uh, and the tanks said right on them, not crash-worthy, not to be used in combat. Metal tanks. Metal tanks, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and we were full of gas, and we were flying f- up the country to sit standby because— um, there was going to be raids across the border and there was concern that an Apache might get in a jam and need somebody to come and bring them fuel. Right. Right. 
that w or there might be somebody gets shot down and need for us to go get them. Yeah. <clears throat> and by the way, I know that a lot of helicopters get used for the combat search and rescue mission. A lot of helicopters get used for a lot of different things. Yep. But when the going gets tough, and all I'm going to say is look at history. Yeah. When the going gets tough, a Chinook goes and does a job. Yeah. And so I'll just, I'll just leave that there right on the table. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Chinook that goes and picks up all the pieces and well, all the people. Yeah. Well, I'll even add to you, you know, Air Force should have picked the Chinook for their new search and rescue. Spectacular frame. aircraft. But yeah. Best, air, best aircraft ever made. So, so we are riding up there and it was uh, like three o'clock in the morning. And the, the MO then was, I mean, it's pitch black. Yeah. There is no <laughs> freaking light. Any right? dust? Nothing. Uh, well, not run, not run. We're so we were supposed to be at a hundred feet and a hundred knots, and it's very hard to do. And at that level, looking through nods, through night vision goggles, you can just see the ground, <laughs> barely. And so you know the tension is pretty thick, and uh, I'm flying because I'm getting checked off to beat to fly in country. And we're motoring along 100 feet and 100 knots. And if, if you creep up, if you get up to 150 feet, you lose the ground and you almost can't force yourself right. to go back down. You You're know, never coming back down. It's really hard to do. And then, and then I start falling asleep. We're going to a place called Rafa, which is... Uh, Isn't up. that funny how we could do that? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah it's just crazy. Yeah. So we're motoring along and then like we're sitting here like this. And imagine right now if Quinn sitting over there behind that behind that console says, "Break left, break left, missile, missile, missile." Exactly how that came across the the headset, right? Yeah. And so you know the first thing that every single person on that helicopter did was absolutely nothing. We all just froze. Like we're in Saudi Arabia. You know this cannot be happening. There, this, uh, no way this is this happening. So you just freeze up, and. Uh, the guy who was sitting in the jump seat had been to a school that the Marine Corps used to run called mm -hmm. Weapons and Tactics Instructor, yeah. WTI. Mm -hmm. So, he, and he, he can't grab controls. Right. He's in a really bad spot right now. <laughs> and, there's, and there's a new guy sitting in the seat that he wants to be sitting in, you know? So he starts running his mouth pretty quick, you know? And he's like a break left, break phase, break plane, do this, do that, you know? And first thing, I'm just kind of sitting there and I think Russ, I think at that point, Russ said, I've got the controls. I, mean, I might have started one turn. We right. were 4,000 pounds over gross weight, full of fuel, mm -hmm. very heavy, very sluggish, you know. And there wasn't a lot of hooking and jabbing that we could get away with. Um, so we did, we, uh, who was on, Mig Marlowe was on the ramp, and the guy that actually saved everybody's life, a guy named Rich DeWald. Uh, and that story comes back. Come, we'll come back around to Rich DeWald and how he saved a helicopter and a crew as an NCO on the ramp of a helicopter. Um, so we did some light maneuvering. Um, and then we had a uh, guy, we had shooters in the back. And there was the idea tossed out from the jump seat. Hey, you've got guys in the back that can kill those people. Why don't you land and put them out and let them go kill them? You know, somebody's shooting at you, trying to kill you, you know, first time being shot at. I was, meanwhile, saying mayday as fast as I could on the radio. Um, what else happened? Uh, nobody, we hadn't really done any training with our uh, aircraft survivability equipment. Okay. I had been in the Army for a long time, and I had never launched a flare. Right. 
didn't didn't know how any of that stuff worked because you know we don't have the I don't know we don't have the money for that nobody yeah. thinks to plan to but we just had never done any of that and a kid in the forward part of the cabin left forward he's manning a gun he's like an e4 that they you're a gunner now right and he's got a little pickle grip in his hand and he's scared to death like we're we're, we're just waiting to die you know all of us and at some point this kid figures out i've got this thing here that launches a flare so he goes click now when that flare came out at 100 feet it turned darkness into freaking massive daylight shut down everybody's goggles the world got real bright flare went right down to the ground sputtered and it gets dark and then it goes out well, what happened then was that every brain involved realized there's a flare dispenser on this helicopter. <laughs> the there's, a button, there's a button on the cyclic. I can push that button and launch flares. If you could count the pulses <laughs> that went to that flare dispenser, I mean, click, 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 click. You know, we, now everybody's, everybody's, doing it. Russ is pushing it, I'm pushing it, the guy over here is pushing it. Um, <laughs> so, and with the, when I first saw the flare, I thought we were dead. I thought that fl that right. flare going off was us exploding, and right. I was like, "Oh, here it comes! We're gonna crash!" Yep. And then it's like, "Oh, that's a flare! <gasps> We've got flares!" So, so that's going on, and you know, maybe we're blinding the eyes of the people. We initially we were thinking that these people were shooting SA sevens at us because we'd never been in war before. Mm -hmm. There's no experience with this. Knowing what we know today, obviously they were shooting RPGs at us. Mm -hmm. You know. It was Mig Marlowe that saw it, and you know he just didn't know what a RPG looked like, and you know in and in the front, by the way, and you know this in the Chinook, in the front we have no idea what's going on. We can't see anything what's going on back there, 50 feet behind us. So the, so Harvard says you should land. So we're we're going pretty fast, and we start an approach to land in this heavy helicopter, and you know with adrenaline on board, everything's happening a little faster, and we get down to about 30 feet. And I think I turned on the IR searchlight, and the the ground was just big rocks, big, huge, you know, big as this desk. Mm -hmm. It was not like where you're going to do a run on landing. And Chinooks in the desert uh, typically don't come to a hover and then hover down because you, you blow up this huge cloud of dirt and mm -hmm. dust, and it obscures your vision. So what the, the Chinook trick was to come down with some speed, you know, above translational lift speed, with a crew chief in the window as you're approaching the ground and you're moving forward he's calling the dust cloud mm -hmm. and the dust cloud is is overrunning you it's coming up and then dust clouds at the ramp you know and what you want to try to do is get the back wheels down not going too fast so you don't tear the back wheels apart you want to get them down on the ground and then smoothly lower the front wheels and and you're putting this into soft sand so you can like rip the helicopter apart you know so you want to be going as fast as you can go and as slow as you can go all at once and you want to get the front end down before the dust cloud envelops the cockpit because once your cockpit's enveloped you're blind and you can't see what's happening it didn't work out so good for us so because we had such a rate of descent going you know we turned the pink light on and oh rocks you can't land here and russ pulls the thrust control rod up the collective if you're a regular mm -hmm. helicopter pilot and pulls in a whole bunch of power and the old girl just keeps going down and she comes down and uh, there's a big crunch sound and my brain at this point goes this is real like we're tearing up a helicopter now mm -hmm. this is not training you know wake up uh, we hit the right rear of the aircraft on a big chunk of rock 
and that lifted the right rear up and rolled the girl, rolled the old girl left, so nose down and left, and so then our left front wheel hit a rock and it just broke that landing gear off. Made it retractable. Yeah. Once there was like yeah there was like a metal <laughs> broken edge stump like when you break a tooth off yeah. that was what was over there. Um, and he's got a massive amount of power pulled in. You know, our engines produce 3,750 horsepower continuous. And if you're scared, there's 9,000 under your left hand, 9,000 horsepower under that hand. Yeah. To heck with those emergency power lights, right? And he was getting into that power and getting that helicopter stopped. And I can remember very clearly, I looked down through my feet and I saw world sliding that way. Can't see anything at all out in front. And I looked down and I go, you're sliding right or you're drifting right. And I put my hand on the cyclic and stopped the helicopter and said, you have the controls. And then I looked up and the utility hydraulic light came on because we had yep. crushed the right rear. And I, this is the only two things I really did. I had the presence of mind to reach up and in the dark, thank goodness, find that switch and isolate that, that hydraulic system. That's the only two things I did. Yeah. Uh, but I just instinctively knew to do that. <clears throat> so, uh, now we're hovering and we're waiting like it's really bad now. You know, this is, and Russ is not having a good time and Harvard is steady talking, wanting me to be out of that seat. Um, and we couldn't land. So the only thing we could do is we just like started moving forward. And uh, we probably made a dust cloud 1500 feet up in the air yep. and probably a mile across. So whoever was shooting at us could no longer see us. I think we created our own smoke screen, if you will. Uh -huh. And, it, you know, crazy night. We, uh, we left from that location, and we were about 12 miles from Rafa, flew up to Rafa, put everybody out of the helicopter, and Russ and I just stayed in there, and we landed it down onto that stump of metal and got out, and I had a thermos of coffee. And I've got a, I'll send you a picture of us standing next to that helicopter. Uh, all that all those years ago you know, yeah definitely uh, you know, russ and i and you i got a picture of russ and you can see it in his face he's got like you know long face yeah um yeah, i'm we'll, outside we'll make, we'll make sure we put that in the video too yeah. that way people can see it cause yeah it's uh it's funny to see that picture now because i that was it was daylight it had right. got to be daylight and then you know so well now what do you do now well we're going to get back in the helicopter and we're going to fly it back down to kkmc and they're going to go rebuild it yep so that's what we did with that so that was my that's my war story gotcha you know? gotcha but yeah it's incredible and and these were these weren't even AWCs, right? Or were they? I think, I think it was a mirror image cockpit. Okay, gotcha. But I could be wrong about that. So it, might have, it might have just been a Warbird, you know? Gotcha, I mean, I, yeah. It might yeah. have just been a regular snow. I can't, I can't yeah. really remember. Different, different, you know, for the listeners, we're just, you know, these are just the different versions of the helicopter yeah. that we evolved around. And third battalion basically got well, hand-me-downs for the longest time. Yeah, well, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. When <laughs> we started, there was a Blackhawk company. Yeah. And we got this amazing warrant officer named Tim Bullitt, who is still here in Savannah today. He, yep. he, he runs the show at the American Legion in Thunderbolt, across from coaches. Mm -hmm. He was our maintenance guy, and it was his job to go around to all these Chinook units all over America and get whatever helicopter they chose to give him. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you've got... That's probably the best helicopter, I'm got, sure, right? right? If you've got 16 <laughs> helicopters and you got to give one away, which one are you going to give away, right? So, I mean, I saw that poor guy, you know, he used to have his head down all the time because he was trying to get these things into serviceable condition. It, yeah. And he did an amazing yeah. job. Bulek, I mean, uh, Bridges even said, I couldn't have ever done this without what Tim Bulek did. Yeah. And then you did another, what, eight years after Desert Storm. You were in 3rd Battalion at the beginning, so you were, you were responsible for training guys like 
Peterson and Bridges and mm-hmm. and and others, Clark Brown, uh, Mike Larson, you know, guys like that. Larson was my co-pilot. <laughs> I got a great Larson story. Oh, I got a and, great Larson story. <laughs> oh Lord. And, you know, and, and and then you know, you retired. I showed up the year after that. Yeah. And then two years after that, 9/11 happens. And you know, without a doubt, you know, your legacy of forming Thurbitine, your your influence, your, your mm-hmm. wisdom, you know, it paid off, you know, I mean, it's it, without a doubt. I mean, we, well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. That's very kind, but I'm going to tell you that it, Tim Bullock came here from another night stalker battalion. Bruce Bridges came here from another night stalker mm-hmm. battalion. Really it was those guys that said, this is how a night stalker unit works. Sure. I yeah. didn't know. Right. Right. Now we did, we, we adapted to the marching orders. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing, that they really instilled in us. And, that, and I'm very proud to say that that is still there today. You know, our mission is to arrive time on target plus or minus 30 seconds. No excuses. Yeah. If you go to the wrong place, you're wrong. Yep. If you're early or you're late, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't care what the weather did. I don't care about maintenance. You get there within 30 seconds. Yeah. No. No excuses, no anything. You just get that freaking helicopter there on time. Mm-hmm. And that that was pretty, and I'm not sure it's always as observed as religiously in all this, I don't know for sure, but uh, in, in all the other sections of the regiment. But here, the little engine that could, third herd, you know, we yeah. were very, very serious about getting to the right place on at the right time. Yeah. I put a rope down one time with the, actually Iker was 50 feet out my right door. I put a rope down so that uh, rangers could slide down a fast rope from about 60 feet up in the air, in the dark, at night, in a dust place, you know. And the rope's going about 50 feet behind my seat. That's where it's going down, right? And when the rope hit the ground, I was 13 seconds off which is not bad. And this was all being filmed from a gun, a C-130 gunship. It's all, you can see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so timing is good. When, I, when my rope hit the ground, the ranger wanted to get off the rope, turn around 180 degree turn and blow a door away, which is right there. That door is supposed to be right there and he's gonna blow that door off its hinges right now. Mm-hmm. I was eight feet off. And that was a debrief. Yeah. I was about to say, how'd that debrief go? I was eight feet off. Yeah. Dude, yeah. I, I didn't want to be eight feet away from that door. I wanted to be turn around and there's that door. Right. That's the level of precision that is expected of night stalkers. And yeah. we, don't, we don't make excuses. Right. You, know, you, you go do that. Yeah. If you can't do that, you know, go be a regular Army Chinook pilot. Right. Yeah. No harm. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> just, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And, you, know. you just got you, you to gotta ascribe to that. I'm not a very sharp guy, but I always believed in that you got to be there. And I've had to stand up, you know, and explain why I wasn't on, you know, why I didn't get where I was supposed to be on time. It's, right. it's humiliating. It is. It's embarrassing. You don't want to do it. And what you want to do more than anything else on earth is to not do that again. You know, you want next time I will get that. Whatever it takes. Right. To the right place. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when I, one of the first times I met you, I'm a writer now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write for a magazine called Vertical Valor. It used to be Vertical 911. I've been writing for them for five years. I got hired to write for them because I started writing a helicopter blog in my second career uh, when I was a medevac pilot for 17 years. And I actually shifted that entire industry. One guy with a keyboard made a 
sea change in an entire industry. Um, but the I started writing a blog because I was sitting on standby and I was bored and it's something to do, you know, and Google right. had this blogger thing, you know. Uh, that that's worked pretty well, and that got me hired to write for the magazine. But I wrote about us having lunch, and I posted this little bit that I wrote. It's called Lunch Date. Uh, you and I and Tim Denton, and uh, I forget who else was there. Maybe Larson was there. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, but I wrote about that experience of having lunch and Denton's story. And a guy saw that and said, holy Dude, you got the makings of a writer. You know, you should. Be. He read that on a on a bulletin board. Right. What I wrote, but if you remember, it was uh, we had lost a helicopter. <clears throat> uh, these guys went into a combat zone. This was long after I was retired, and they went in and uh, people started shooting and it got bad and it was time to leave. And one helicopter crashed and did not leave. What I do remember is that Denton, and I'm equating this to Dan Folds now. Sure, sure. They're shooting down there, and I just left. I'm safe now, and I'm going that way. Yeah. And this other guy crashes, and Denton goes back. Dude. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we go back down there, we're going to get killed. Yeah. But we got to do it. Yep. Yeah. And there's a price. I mean, you know, and again, there, there's there's no doubt that uh, anybody would have done the same thing. But it's just that's what that's what somebody said. And I was like, I am so sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's nice to sit here eating my pasta and think I would. But uh, right. well, yeah, yeah. It, 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 until you're faced with that decision. Yeah. I mean, maybe if your blood's up, you know, you're in the heat. Right. Of hell, you know, because I'm sure I, there wasn't the, the thinking about it at the time. It was just uh, gotta now, go back. I know for a fact for Tim, there's been a lot of thinking about it after the fact. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I mean, he is what a hero. Yeah. Without a doubt, without yeah. a doubt, you know, and that's just, you know, there's so many, uh, and again, I'm thankful for all the, for all the people that I've gotten to know because of that. And, you know, their desire not to quit. <sighs> he was right when it mattered. So flew medevac helicopter 17 years. Yes. And when I got into that business, it was pretty dangerous. It was, uh, depending on what reference you use, it was the most dangerous occupation in the world. The guys that fish off the coast of Alaska. Yep. That's the deadliest catch. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's either, med it was either medevac or that for the fastest way to get killed. There was an article written in a, in a trade medical trade publication that said if you flew, I can't, 20, 25 hours a month for 20 years, you had a 40% chance of being killed in a medevac helicopter. I mean, that was a pretty stark number, but. Yeah. Um, in 2008, I mean, I started doing that in 2000, and in 2008, it was a bloodbath. There was a, and it's something no really thinks about, you know, unless it's, you know the crew, you know, mm -hmm. or you know the people involved. Um, so I decided that there was room for improvement, and I was going to start writing about it. Um, a guy with a keyboard, you know, and I made, and I didn't, I wasn't working for any company that was paying me to do that this was just something I just started doing and I started like sitting back and looking at how these crashes occur and I started I, I wrote one fictional story based upon a real-life crash that killed a friend of mine and a nurse and a paramedic uh, that it's called nobody rings a bell it's at helicopterms.com it's been read 35,000 times probably so I know that there are young girls that are flight nurses in Montana mm -hmm. for instance that I'll never meet that read that and it changed and it, and it affected them. 
I mean, I know this. Give, give me, I, I think I know just by virtue of the title, what, what the article story was trying to instill. Give me the quick 30 second. Well, the, the quick thing is, uh, and this is where I, I, I did something. So you've got, in the air medical helicopter business, you've got two separate agencies. You've got aviation, mm -hmm. which is controlled by the FAA, and you've got medicine. And you're putting a pilot, a single pilot, mostly, in with a nurse and a paramedic. That's the normal crew mix. Um, and there's a wall between aviation, and there shouldn't be, right? Right. Uh, because it's hard to crash half of a helicopter. Yeah. If I kill me, I'm going to kill you too. Mm -hmm. uh, so the industry has interests. They're interested in a single pilot because it's cheaper, and you can have a smaller helicopter, right? Yep. Um, the industry is interested in the crews doing 24-hour shifts because you can hire less people, and that means you make more money, you know, more profit. I'm a capitalist, but I'm, you know, and I understand how things work. But so there's there's the way things are, and they got to be the way they are over time, uh, based upon like what would kind of work, but it didn't work best. I'm a Chinook guy, and the reason I'm alive is when that guy was shooting missiles at us, this guy Rich DeWald was sitting on the ramp, and he realized that the, the Yahoos up front were getting ready to really screw up. And Rich DeWald, this E6 or E7, said, okay, that's not effective fire. Everybody calm down right now. That's all we needed. Yep. Yeah. Re-cage re our... So, yeah. so you got a nurse and a paramedic in a helicopter with a single pilot. Mm -hmm. I'm a Chinook guy. There's a five-person crew, you know, typically yeah. men and not so much anymore. Now there's women, I think. Mm -hmm. um, those are resources to you, those people. So the FAA says you cannot call the nurse and the paramedic crew member. The FAA wrote this, and the NTSB wrote it, you know, like, as noted by the NTSB. They came out with this position statement, and I get it because the Fed, the FAA, cannot control the nurse and the paramedic. Right. They don't drug test them they don't duty limit them they have they they're passengers yeah they don't exist we don't want to even think about them so that's the faa you know and then the medical side you know they they're not pilots you know they're not aviators and i was like oh this is a bunch of hooey you know there's three people go get in a helicopter it's no different than a chinook mm -hmm. or a crew we're all gonna work together and i had that and where i really shook things up was i wrote up I wrote a position paper that said that we should use the nurse or the paramedic to, to assist us with before takeoff checks instead of the single pilot. Now, I don't know if you've flown civilian, but you're used to checklists as am yeah. I. I mean, I live by checklists, mm -hmm. loved them. You don't so much do that in the civilian world. You tend to get into a helicopter and there's a thing called a flow or a cockpit wipeout and you just do it from memory. You are required by regulation uh, to pick up a checklist before you lift up, before you take off, and verify. So it's called do verify. And it's an acceptable method of, of a checklist accomplishment. That acceptable method has equated to a whole bunch of dead people in crash helicopters. And I, and I cottoned it. I figured out what was going on here. I mean, like, a lot of people dead. And the most recent big one was a helicopter that crashed out in Colorado, in Frisco. There's, it's on YouTube. Uh, a guy named Pat Mahaney took off with his hydraulic switch in the wrong position. 
And the helicopter came up and spun around and went down and crashed and caught fire and it burnt him up and killed him. Burned a nurse named Dave Repture up terribly. Um, and I had proposed to the director of operations of that company that we institute this idea that I had to have the be challenge and response between two people in the helicopter before that happened. And, uh, and God bless him. You know, I mean, I'm trying to move a mountain here, you know. So the guy said, I think it's a pretty neat idea. I'll talk about it. We'll see what happened. Nothing ever happened. That lawsuit from that Frisco crash, it's $100 million. And a, de and a dead pilot. Right, you know? right. I mean, that's, it, and somebody's but severely It's a lot of money. And, and if you really want to get corporate America to pay attention, you slap a $100 million fine on them, you know. Right. And then all of a sudden, all now all, we're all ready to talk. Um, yeah, so I wrote this thing, uh, I think a challenge and response, and I listed all the crashes that were uh, errors of omission, you know, and done it myself. Mm -hmm. uh, you're familiar with the 145. Yeah. Right? The Army mm -hmm. has them. Well, mm -hmm. in that helicopter, have you ever flown one? No. So in that helicopter, the, the fuel tanks are under the floor. And there are large storage tanks uh, which then move fuel from these large, relatively flat tanks into what you can visualize as coffee cans, mm -hmm. to the supply tanks, and they're like coffee cans. And because as the helicopter is maneuvering through the air, fuel can slosh. You know, you move like the fuel would slosh, and it might. If you didn't have these supply tanks, at at low fuel levels, the fuel would slosh away from the pickup, and you'd suck air, and your engine would quit. Bad. Yeah, bad. So you have pumps that move fuel from the big tanks into the little tanks, to the point that they're always full and overflow. Mm -hmm. They just overflow right back into the big tank. So those are called. Um, transfer pumps. There's start pumps that you that put pressure, fuel pressure to the engine for starting, you turn them off, and then you turn on these transfer pumps. Guys forgetting to do that uh, led to a helicopter crashing in Scotland, the, the Clutha pub crash. It was a police helicopter, police Scotland. Guy didn't have his transfer pumps on. Full tanks, empty supply tanks, motors quit through the roof of a pub, killed a bunch of people. Uh, BK in uh, Australia. BK for my, a company I work for, OmniFlight, paralyzed the pilot. Uh, it's, the trick is that the, uh, the warning lights that show low fuel are tied into the rheostats for the instrument lights. And so if you've got the helicopter set for night flight, you can't see the master caution come on. You can't see the caution segments come on. They're so dim. They're set up for night, mm -hmm. unneeded night. Um, so if you forget to, to set the lights for day, and you forget to do the fuel, and that's it's the two things you forget, you know. So I just uh, I wrote this thing, and uh, it it was in Waypoint Air Med and Rescue. They picked it up over in the UK. So this is a worldwide thing. Uh, and like, who is this guy? What's he thinking? You know, um, the Association of Air Medical Services, which is the national trade group. And I'll tell you, who really likes likes me and likes my idea is the nurses and the medics. Because <laughs> I'm trying to keep them alive. Sure. You know, yeah. they're all about it. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, Vertical. My right. editor, Elon Head, asked me to write a story about it. How did you come to feel like this? Well, I came to feel like this because I'm a Chinook pilot. Mm -hmm. And in a Chinook, when you're making money with a helicopter, frequently there's a 20-year-old kid or 30-year-old kid. How old are you? 30. Yeah, 30-year-old kid, 50 feet behind us on the ramp. And that kid is directing what is happening with that helicopter. Right. And all we're doing is exactly what that kid is telling us to do in our mm -hmm. ear. 
right? Yeah. He's actually flying a helicopter just through our our muscles. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the most normal thing on earth for me to say, I don't care. Nurse, paramedic, fine. You're a crew member. Right. Get in. Yeah. I'm going to teach you how to, I'm going to teach you how this works. And, and you're going to save my life, you know? So that, that article was a big deal. I'll send you the link to the article. Yeah, definitely. I'd love uh, to see it. Cause it was, it was, it was funny cause it wasn't just in one magazine. It was in like all, all the magazines were interested in, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and now if you call a typical air medical helicopter base anywhere in America and say, do you guys use uh, the crew to conduct checks before you take off most bases now say yeah why not why wouldn't you yeah doesn't absolve the pilot of the responsibility it's still the pilot's job you know mm -hmm. but that resource sitting next to me because in in a bk the guy's right next to me oh the reason i brought up the 145 in the army they still have those fuel they still have those switches wow if those now army guys read checklists right and there's two pilots in there yeah so they're probably not gonna screw that up but uh yeah interesting that was uh, that was like that, that you know writing about the crash the the typical crash scenario right and and how not to do that and and by the way in that article when nobody rings a bell the person that saved the crew mm -hmm. was a girl who had just been through crew resource management training and had had this pumped into her head because I was a guy that traveled all over America and did that training for flight programs all over, including at Mike Mock's place, yep. out in Memorial Hermann Life Flight. Mm -hmm. And I'd get the newest girl in the room and I'd put a, two chairs up in the front and I've got a slide presentation and I'm gonna take you on a flight and I'm gonna go kill you. And I would make that new girl, 24, 25 year old girl right out of college, who thinks that the pilot has all the answers. We do most times, <laughs> but not all the time. Not all the time. Not all the time. <laughs> You know, and make her, make this young girl look at a 60-year-old guy and say, I think we're making a mistake and I want you to do something different. Yeah. That's how I say it. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's life-saving. That's awesome. And good pilots, there's drongos. You know, when the airline started doing crew resource management training, they call them drongos. Drongos is a little bird that flies around, poops on everybody's head. And some pilots just aren't going to take to it. Yeah. Right. If you, can you imagine if you were a Chinook guy and you didn't want any input from the crew? Yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah. get out. Get out. Get out. Get out. Right. You just wouldn't, you won't last as a Chinook guy. Yeah. If you can't work together with a crew. Yep. So it's, uh, so I'm the perfect guy to be talking about CRM. That's anyway. Awesome. That's awesome. I probably rambled long enough. No, that's, <laughs> that's good stuff. And again, it, I mean, it, it, it speaks so much to some of the things we were talking about earlier to you, your personality, what drives you, you know, and, and, you know, and I think just sort of wrap this up, you know, with a question to you. And we've already probably said some of this, but, you know, the, the title of this show is Thriving on Mission because mm -hmm. I feel that, you know, you can either be just surviving or you can thrive. And mm -hmm. we've all got a mission, you know, and, you know, I think I've been able to pick it up. The listener can be able to pick it up as far as, you know, you are thriving on mission. You have been. There have been some emotional events, one in particular, but but even now <clears throat> with the pandemic going on and people have been isolated, you know, you were recently sick and your wife and. So, like, what would you tell somebody who's having trouble to thrive right now? What, what would you, what would you? I think everybody's good at something. You know, if you've been, if you've been around the sun a few times, there's probably something you're good at. And, uh, and there's somebody who is not as fortunate as you. And somebody who's probably not as good as what you're good at. And uh, you will feel good about yourself, I believe, 
if you take your strength and, and share that with someone else. Well said. Well, it, it's been a it's been a pleasure sure. to have you here. Yeah, we could do this for days. Oh, I know. It's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I talk for a living. You know, well, I, you know, and especially just aviation and. But it's just been awesome having you here. How could if people want to reach out to you if they maybe they want to watch NASCAR stuff because. We, so, we didn't talk yeah. about that, but yeah. but but you do a NASCAR podcast video. It's Facebook Live. Facebook uh, Live. on the Coach's Corner Facebook page. We okay. do it on Wednesday night. Yeah. Okay, um, so you can just chime into that. And then there, we have a there's a YouTube channel. It's uh, our show is called Rubbin and Grubbin. <laughs> Rubbin's racing and Grubbin's eating, right? Um, <laughs> Rubbin and Grubbin. Yep. Yeah. So if you Google Rubbin and Grubbin uh, okay. for YouTube, that's it's on there. Uh, okay. There's a Twitter feed too. So I have, we have an engineer, we have a brains behind the camera, just like you have. Yeah. Uh, our guy is Lawrence Bennett. Yeah. A uh, friend of mine for years, Night Stalker Association plank holder, NSA awesome. Savannah, long pole in the tent. Yeah. He's fed 400 people before, you know. Do you still have a blog or is that? Yeah, the blog, I, I don't, I'm not nearly as active on the blog. Gotcha. Well, I know that you also do, you do some boating articles now Got too. A boat, boat blog, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, What's so that one? www.savannahboater.com. Okay. And we'll make sure we put links to all this. this. Yeah. So that, I mean, like, Savannah is all about boats and water. Yeah. And before there was roads, before there was railroads, this was a water place. And mm -hmm. everything went by boat. And, uh, man, that, just diving into that history and writing about that and learning about that. Final plug for the Night Stalker Association. If somebody wanted to get involved, if they want to donate money, because they yeah. will, will take money, right? Yeah. You know, or time. When a kid gets uh, in, a, in, a, in a bad way, yeah. we, we like to be, you know, like the guys in white hats. You know, Come alongside we're here. And help we, we got money. We got money. We got support. Yeah. We yeah. absolutely could use uh, help with our, with our checkbook. Uh, well, I'm Dan Folds, and my phone number is 912-657-5222. I'm at folds.folds.daniel at gmail.com. So, yeah, so there's there's luck and there's skill, right? Yeah. And in the beginning, you've got a bucket, and you've got some luck and you got in one bucket, and you got some skill in the other. And if you're lucky, your skill bucket gets full before your luck bucket gets empty. Good way to put it. And, uh, and my luck bucket got real close to being empty a couple times. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, that's good stuff. Fun. All right. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks to City Church, Quinn. Thanks for producing. Quinn, thanks. And uh, you got an amazing setup, dude. I'm like so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and until uh, next episode, so thanks for listening, and we will see you all later. See you down. Great. <laughs>